Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have around 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 23rd of October, 2023, and this is episode 320. On today's Dispatches podcast, Glyn Taylor, a doctoral candidate at King's College London, talks about the performance of the Fifth Army during the German Spring Offensive in 1918. Glyn spoke to me over the interweb from his home in France, and just a word of warning, the sound quality was rather dubious as the internet signal was not as strong as it may be. But do bear with it. It's well worth a listen. Glyn, welcome to the podcast. May you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War, the Fifth Army and the German Spring Offensive? Yes, well, I really became first interested in the Great War in my mid-teens. And uh, I then won a scholarship to cycle around the battlefields, which was uh, actually over 50 years ago. And at age 17, I cycled starting at Mons, um, going all the way to Verdun and back again, finishing at Ypres. Um, So that's how it all started. I continued in interest and I took it into my career in the army. I served in the Sappers, the Royal Engineers, for 35 years. And it was during that period as well, I sort of repeated the uh, battlefield tour with my uh, best man. And I then retired from the army and uh, retired to France, where I still am now. And I decided in the centenary that perhaps I ought to take a really strong interest again in the First World War. Of course, I'd I'd followed certain things about the First World War through uh, my army career, but I didn't really have the time to concentrate on it. So um, I joined the Western Front Association just before the centenary started. And uh, it was through the Western Front Association I I spotted the uh, master's course at University Wolverhampton and by Professor Gary Sheffield and Dr Spencer Jones. So I completed that and having completed it the thing that it really interested me was was doing research. So I elected to do a PhD and there was no room at the inn at Wolverhampton by the time I decided this. So, uh, so Gary Sheffield suggested I have a go at King's College L- London And I wanted to do something about 1918. And in the application process, I was very fortunate to pick up Professor Nick Lloyd as my first supervisor and Dr Amy Fox, my second supervisor. And between us, it it was then decided that actually um, I should do Fifth Army in the whole of 1918. I started wanting to do it just in the advance to victory because absolutely nothing had been done about that at all. Um, but Nick felt as well that um, Fifth Army in the Spring Defence um, had not been done well enough, not been done that recently either. So he suggested that the appropriate subject would be to cover Fifth Army in the whole of 19. Um, and so the interest in the German spring offensives was was automatic because, of course, the key event for Fifth Army in 1918 was the fact that they were attacked, pushed back a long way, the first German spring offensive in, in March. So before we get into the detail of that, could you tell us a bit about the Fifth Army, when it was formed and how big it was? And were there, was it the fifth of five armies? 
Um, it, well, it, it was the fifth of five armies at certain stages, yes. And uh, but it, it, it was formed in in 1916. Um, General Haig, he, he formed up a reserve corps to uh, have a reserve corps to sort of move around the battlefield to speak under the command of General Hugh Guff um, very early in 1916. But he expanded it to become the reserve army for the Battle of the Somme. And uh, it was waiting with three cavalry divisions, two infantry divisions um, for a breakthrough on the 1st of July. But of course, that that breakthrough never happened. And almost immediately, um, feeling that Fourth Army was perhaps commanding too many corps, he gave Guff and still the Reserve Army, as it was called then, the two northern corps of the Somme Front, and began then to take part in the Battle of the Somme. Um, to some extent, it was still led by Fourth Army and Fifth Army, as it became on the 30th of October 1916, sort of followed on on the northern sector, the left flank of Fourth Army. But then in November at the Battle of Onk, which was a relative success, actually, Fifth Army fought alone, really, in its first battle, having just been renamed. After that, it took part in the um, advance to Hindenburg Line when the Germans retreated there after the Battle of the Somme. So that was in about March, early April of uh, 1917. It took part in the Battle of Bullecourt, the flanking action at Arras, between sort of April and May 1917. And then controversially, it was moved up to 30 for the Battle of Passion, as most people call it now. And Fifth Army was given the lead because Haig felt that Hubert Guff was more likely to achieve a breakthrough Thirdeep. This didn't happen. He led the attack from 31st of July to the end of August. The breakthrough did not occur. And then after that, the lead was handed over to Second Army with General Herbert Plumer. But Fifth Army still fought there in the northern sector, the Thirdeep battlefield, until November 1917. It was then moved down to the Somme region, um, ready to take over a number of corps for the southern sector of the British Front, which had been um, expanded in favour of the French. So if we look at the size of Fifth Army then, all armies um, in the British Expeditionary Force were formed of various corps, various number of divisions, and this changed consistently um, throughout the war as corps and divisions were rotated. But if we come actually down to March 1918, when Fifth Army faced the Spring Offensive, it was composed of 11 infantry divisions with the further three in reserve. So that's about 140,000 men. It had the whole of the BEF cavalry by then. It had been reduced to only three divisions because two had been sent out to the Middle East. And it also had the sort of supporting arm. So, so it was sort of 200,000 plus as an army by the time it, it fought its great battle in March 1918. So we'll come to that battle in a minute. So where exactly was it deployed on the Western Front in the spring well, of 18? Yes, it, it, it was deployed in this 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 southern sector. Effectively, it, it was between the salient that was left, it was called the Flakir salient, that was left after the Battle of Cambrai had taken place, the great tank in November 1917. So it was from that salient all the way down to the, and just beyond the Wars River, south of Saint-Quentin. Um, and effectively, it took over two corps from 
um, Third Army, the British Third Army, and then it relieved the French Third Army with two corps as well in the south. So altogether, if we take it from north to south, Fifth Army had seven corps under the command of General Congreve. It then had the cavalry corps very quickly relieved just a few weeks before the German offensive commanded by um, Herbert Watt and his corps, the 19th Corps. You then had General Ivor Maxey with uh, 18 Corps. And finally, you had General Butler in uh, the Southern Sector with with Third Corps. And the Southern Sector was quite interesting, the very south, because the decision was made to place his corps astride the east-west Oise River um, and also to give it a very long frontage because the the uh, the Oise, it sort of turns, it goes east-west from Compiègne, I'm sorry, sorry, west from Compiègne towards Saint-Quentin area and then turns north. And it was felt that this section of the Oise going north would protect Third Corps because it was supposedly a marshland. But that was one of the tactical factors in March 1918 because of the very, very dry spring, it was not a marshland. So we talked about the German spring offensive. Could you just briefly tell us what it was and why did it fall on the Fifth Army in particular? Right. Well, the um, the Germans had beaten the Russians effectively in 1917 because of the Russian Revolution. And this gave them the opportunity to transfer something like 50 divisions from the Eastern Front to the Western Front. And the German strategy was to try and beat the Allies before the Americans entered the war in sort of full scale. American units were starting to dribble into France in early 19, but they hadn't really yet arrived in strength and they needed training and so on. So the Germans came up with a plan of hitting the Allied lines at at various points um, in order to win the war before the American effect. Um, So altogether, you can count five German spring defensives, two fell on the British, three fell on the French. The very first one against the British was actually attack against virtually the whole of of, um, Fifth Army. It was only part of a division south of the east-west wars that um, actually was not hit. And it also fell on nearly two-thirds of Third Army, the British Third Army, to the north of Fifth Army as well. But effectively, Fifth Army took the brunt of that offence, which had altogether three German armies attacking so effectively, one and a half to one and two thirds British armies. And now let's look at the current, or oh, sorry, I'll start that question again. Let's examine the historiography around the performance uh-huh. of the Fifth Army. Did it suffer from a, a moral collapse of some historians or, or did it actually perform quite well? And if it did suffer from a moral collapse, who was to blame? <laughs> the tricky question and uh, the brunt of all all my research. Now, one thing I have researched is the state of morale at Fifth Army in March 1918. And what I used to research that, I looked at the sickness rates, the absenteeism, um, and the numbers of course martial going on across the armies. That's the British armies at that that, that point. Because I've always felt, I mean, part of this comes from my army background too, that, that they are sort of factors. You can take a bit of a snapshot of the morale of the divisions. And I did this by division. And in fact, when you amalgamated the results of the division, Fifth Army was no worse than any of the other armies at all. If anything, it was average in the middle. And the only army which really had higher morale was First Army. And if you look at what had happened in 
1917. First Army had been least used about all the armies there. And also because it was, I think because it was March 1918, you, you saw with these statistics, the morale growing worse as winter came and it started to drop off by March 19, 1918. So I think it would be completely wrong to say that there was a collapse of morale in, in Fifth Army and that was the major problem that they suffered. I think what happened, probably 60 to 70 years of historiography after the war, although the British official history was actually very sympathetic towards Fifth, Fifth Army. Um, because Fifth Army's commander, Hubert Guff, had been sacked, because it had lost so much ground, because the press reaction was so bad in 1918 as well, and actually because the, the Fifth Army, as a name, was removed from the order of battle for three months between April and uh, June of, of 1918, there, there, was, there was something which you could be to stick with. And so Fifth Army sort of became this sort of whipping boy for one of the biggest disasters in British military history, not just in, in the First World War. But I think more recent historiography has been much, much kinder, and it started to look in depth at the range of tactical factors that, that Fifth Army faced and you're, you're almost at a state now where um, I think people think that it was unfortunate the circumstances that Fifth Army was placed in and actually Hubert Guff um, fought a, a quite skillful fighting retreat um, until they effectively just blunted the German offensive and stopped it in front of Amiens just at the point where the name was removed from the order of battle and um, General Sir Henry Rawlinson took over with um, Fourth Army after Guth had been sacked. And were there, was there any sort of high incidents of prisoners of war or people surrendering or large numbers of soldiers going missing during the offensive? There were large numbers who became prisoners. I think it's estimated between Third and Fifth Army, 80 to 90,000 became prisoners of war. But again, if you look at the statistics for this um, in terms of prisoners of war throughout the war. The two high rates of prisoners of war were in the retreat from Mons in 1914 and in the German Spring Offensive in March 1918. Now, of course, one was a completely regular army and the other was the, the sort of the... Um, the mix of regulars, of Kitchener volunteers, national service through conscription and so on, in 1918. So, but the prison and war rates were exactly the same, pretty similar. So what the factor was in open warfare, which you had in 1914, um, from Mons until the end of the, virtually the end of the year, and in March 1918 as well, was the factor where units were more likely to be bypassed and surrounded. So they surrendered more easily than they did in the stalemates of 1915 to 17. No, I mean, that, that's interesting. So I've, it's what's an area I've been looking at. So what does your research about, what does, sorry, what does your research suggest about the performance of the Fifth Army? Um, well, I think let's, let's, let's divide this into um, a number of factors. It's like all, all battles, it's very rare there's a single tactical factor that dominates. Um, I mean, I can give you my view at the end from all, all my research, what I thought were the most dominant uh, tactical factors in March 9, 1918. But let's start with when they took over their, their 
frontage. I mean, this decision was made at the Boulogne Conference on the 25th of September 1917. Um, but Haig was very much then deep in the Thirty battles, so he, he didn't attend. And uh, he received a letter from Chief of the Imperial General Staff, Willie Robertson, which came like a bombshell, according to Haig's diaries, because the Allies had agreed at this meeting that the British would extend the frontage, as I said earlier, to the benefit of the French. And Haig was left to sort it out with General Pétain, um, then the head of the French army. And it's quite interesting reading the letter exchanges between them, that period between sort of October and December, because you've got one man's reluctance, Haig, and of course, naturally, you've got Pétain wanting to get on with it. And Haig actually forestalled the discussions twice. Once was after the Battle of Caporetto, when the British sent five divisions to Italy. And the second was after the German counterattack at Cambrai um, on the 1st of December. And finally, in the December period, we um, we get to uh, the time sort of really wanted to get on with it. And finally, he gets Haig to agree on the 18th of December. But my sort of estimate looking at this period and the exchanges and so on, is if the British had gone ahead with it straight away, ignored what had happened about Caporetto and the Cambrai offence, they would actually have six more weeks to take over from the French and prepare their defensive positions before March 1918. Because one of the other tactical factors was the amount of time they had to prepare the defensive positions. So let's move on to the next um, tactic now. And that was the, let's call it, the. it's known as the reduction in the infantry battalions. Now, did this, as you discussed earlier, did this affect morale? Did it disrupt what was going on? Well, it certainly affected the strength of the divisions because, of course, the division reduced from 12 infantry battalions to nine infantry battalions. It also had a pioneer battalion as well perform the infantry role, albeit with less firepower. And um, in that process as well, uh, battalions departed the division to move to another division. Um, they were completely disbanded, or particularly with the territorial force, battalions were merged. You had a merger between the first line territorial force and the second line territorial force. And that exercise took place at the end of January 1918, and it took place over a period of month. And actually, the British Expeditionary Force performed a miracle by completing it so quickly. Um, and in the circumstances of doing an analysis of this, and uh, again, this has been done before by Simon Justice. I, did, I didn't like his weighting index that he, 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 he used, but he determined that Fifth Army had more um, dislocations, as he called them, than any of the other armies at the time. I repeated the analysis without using a, a weighted index because I thought that was flawed. And, but I just did a comparison between Fifth Army and Third. The Fifth Army was certainly worse in terms of I, I call them disruptions. So a disruption was one of these changes that I explained before um, compared to Third Army. And some of the divisions, particularly the 16th Irish Division, um, and 58th London Division had between sort of eight and ten disruptions. So they previously had 12 battalions and eight to ten were either disbanded, merged or, or changed. So that, that, was, that was a significant factor in the composition of the division. 
Commons. Of course, the period of time as well that it took to actually reorganise robbed the chance of um, doing work on the defensive system. Again, I'll take the example of 58th Division, who immediately they arrived from the Ypres sector to the Somme region. They went into this, for them, a two-week exercise to reduce the infantry battalions and merge. Now, because of that, 30th Division had to take over 58th Division's piece of the line in advance of 58th Division arriving because the French were going. They only spent two weeks there before 58th Division arrived, then 30th Division had to move to a different sector of the line to start constructing their defences. So in fact, the exercise had disrupted two divisions in terms of preparing for the March offensive. And I think it's that time disruption in many ways which was a more significant factor than all the changes in the battalions. So does does in, does performance, however you want to define it, vary from division to division? Does the 16th division perform worse or better, say, than the 58th division? Uh, well, that, I mean that is a that, that that that's a very good point. This this again, I've examined this, and the the best way to assess the performance was actually on the first two days of the attack. It's quite difficult after that because of open warfare. Um, and what I looked at with this in in in, in the new defensive system, the British created uh, a forward zone, a battle zone, and uh, a rear zone as well. So what I examined was um, who were the worst performing divisions in, in terms of where did their line end up at the end of the first day and at the end of the second day. And actually, strangely, 16th Division was one of the worst performing divisions, and they did effectively collapse. Um, and interesting with them as well, apart from having all these disruptions, they were amongst the worst when I did the analysis on morale. They had the worst sickness, they had the worst um, absentee, um, and they had the worst courts martial as well. But so did the other Irish division, 36th division, um, also for the 21st of March, and they performed really well. So it wasn't necessarily um, the either the morale factor or the reductions in battalions factor governed the collapse of 16th Division. And interestingly, the one brigade of 58th Division that was engaged as well on the 21st of March, it didn't collapse, but it was one of the worst performing parts of the division on the whole day as well. So although you could look at that and say, yes, perhaps there is a strong link between the reductions in battalions and their performance on the 21st of March. When I look at other tactical factors, it wasn't necessarily the case. And so when is your research going to be available? Um, the, uh, uh, um, I think perhaps I ought to go on first to describe some of the other, other important tactical factors. Um, well, I talk briefly about intelligence because this appears in the historiography. You know, they didn't know where the Germans were going to attack, and they didn't expect the type of attack. And, and this is actually um, this is something that this again grown as a little bit of a myth. I mean, certainly from the Fifth Army point of view, their intelligence officers, their um, great staff, um, general staff is a great one. Um, chap called Lieutenant Colonel SS Butler. He and Gus were predicting from early February that the Germans were going to attack them. And they also knew because the fact that von Houtier had, um, uh, had come into the German line opposite them, that they knew about the German tactics as well. 
and there was a really important conference on the 3rd of February, which um, the historiography seemed completely missed, and I think I know why too, where, where Gough um, had discussions with his corps commanders about what they were expecting to face, but also about how they were going to defend against the threat too. And the problem is, in terms of the archives, is that the, the proceedings of the conference are in the archives, but the pre-conference notes are not. But if you go into the third court archives at their own conference, which was three days later, 6th of February, you find the pre-conference notes for the Fifth Army Conference on the 3rd. And there was two main items in those pre-conference notes. One was a complete appreciation of Hoochie's attack on um, Riga. So that's the, the German tactics with the Brockman and bombardment mixing gas with explosives to neutralise the British. And it also had the infiltration tactics with, with stormtroopers too. So Fifth Army well knew that the highest levels of the question cascaded down. And I, I can talk about that late, later too. Um, but the second paper in the pre-conference notes was about the, how they proposed to um, uh, harness the new British defence policy, which had been published in mid-December by General Headquarters, 1917, to adopt a German system defence in depth. And this is how you came to the system of having a forward zone and a battle zone and a rear zone. And the corps commanders discussed on the 3rd of February. They came up, they decided on a, a schematic layout, which was to defend a sector with a brigade in depth. So a single brigade was responsible for the forward zone the whole of the battle zone and could, in extremists, retire to the rear zone. And they also decided they were going to put, all, the frontage was so long, they decided that they were going to put three brigades in the line in most divisions, in what ended up as an example, both, um, both 3rd Corps, 18 Corps and 19 Corps had all their brigades in line, except one that was kept as the core reserve. Um, uh, Seven Corps in the North, rather lucky, were able to put just two brigades in the line, and each had a core in sort of reserve. So, so this sort of this conference, when you see all the papers and you analyse what happened with it, um, actually um, sort of blows apart any. Um, thought that Fifth Army were not fully prepared because of intelligence, but also that they did not un understand the defence scheme too. And what was particularly interesting about the defence scheme, um, General Sir Ivor Maxey, of course, was the great trainer, and he became Inspector General Doctrine and Training midway through 1918. He thoroughly trained his corps. He had a, a commander's conference at staff officer and commanding officer level, in February. He followed this up at the end of the month with a conference for um, company commanders and he had a platoon commanders conference planned as well um, in about the third week of March but strangely that's when the Germans attacked so it never actually took place. He, he thoroughly trained it. He didn't do a lecture on Riga himself. He actually knew more about the counterattack at Cambrai, and he personally gave the lecture. The lesson learned 
about Bart stalkings and so on. And there is evidence, although that, um, and, and he said at the conference, we, you must pass this right down the command. And there's evidence from a personal account of a corp in 30 Division who perfectly describes the defensive system. So if you train your corps properly, you might do well on the day. And it, it is of interest, therefore, that none of the other corps followed a similar training program like this. The corps that were best of Cluster Mark was Maxi because he used the um, he used the sort of the, the model layout discussed on the third of February for defence in depth, and he trained his corps the knowledge to defend, and they performed best. And that, for me, was the biggest tactical factors that I, I spotted in the whole of my research. And were there any other factors that are worth mentioning? Um, I think probably the, the the other, well, I think I think there's three more. One's the plan for use of reserves, another's the tactical use of the waterways, because the whole region was crisscrossed with uh, waterways, and the third one was the fog. I mean, briefly on reserves, there, there weren't enough. There was only three divisions in reserve to 11. If we if we count that against the German defence in depth, there would have been five and ten <laughs> in the uh, reserve. And although Gough asked for more reserves, he was actually reliant on the French plan to bring reserves in. And quite early on, he'd taken over the whole of the line from the French. He went to visit General Humbert of the French Third Army, who he had believed. And he was shocked to find that he wasn't sitting there near, near Compiègne with all the divisions who had been relieved. They'd been scattered around by the French. So when General Humbert eventually turned up on the 21st of March, he famously says, all I have is the fanion on my car, the flag on my car, because he arrived with no dedicated divisions. And in fact, the, the French reserve plan had been discussed. There were mutual plans between Pétain and Haig, and the French had suffered three options, had studied three options um, to um, come up with this reserve plan. But no divisions were dedicated to it in, a, um, in terms of distance or a timely manner to execute the plan quickly. And again, I've done an analysis of this and what was option one, the easiest option, was not actually achieved for at least a week. And so Fifth Army was facing the brunt of this German offensive, effectively with French reserves being fed in piecemeal. And when Haig moved down new divisions from the north, he moved six down, only two were sent to um, Fifth Army, one in fact quite late too, whereas the other four were sent to Third Army. Because what he feared, he feared a breakthrough in the Third Army sector that may then turn north and roll up the whole British line and lose uh, the Channel ports. So he was much more uh, relaxed about letting Fifth Army give ground. In fact, Guff um, received a letter in February to this effect when he'd asked General Headquarters for more reserves, he received a letter then which effectively said, you're allowed to give ground as far as the River Salt. In fact, they gave ground further to that, but towards Amiens because of the power of the German offensive. Um, the tactical use of, of waterways, I think I've mentioned the, the Wars Valley, and um, in particular, it was why did the British go south of the Wars Valley? In effect, what happened when they relieved the French? The, they just relieved the French Third Army there, and the point of juncture was south of the Wars Valley. What this ended up doing was splitting 58th Division as an example of stride the valley. So they, they lost two brigades worth of combat there, which was never attacked. 
because the Germans used the line, they realised that to provide some flank protection to the east-west section, so they were using a flank protection, whereas the British didn't. And he was concerned about this. You can see this with the exchange of letters and so on. When it came, for example, to logistics, he said, I don't want to take over the logistics south of the Wars. I will serve it with lorries instead. And uh, there's even some pencil annotations on the archives uh, right up to the last minute. There's a there's a letter of the 14th of December on, on um, the files, and it shows with the pencil annotations that they were not necessarily going to agree to take over the whole of the line to south of the Wars at that, that point. So the Germans also used other waterways better further up. They used it on the Valley as an army boundary. And it also had, for example, parallel roads on each side, which gave them a direction to advance with. So from that, that, that point of view, the Germans made better use of the tactical use of the waterways as well. I've gone into that in some quite depth. And finally, of course, the fog, which appears in all the historiography, the famous fog that morning. And I was very lucky to be there. I wasn't there in March um, when I went on a battlefield um, tour there. I was there in November. It's strange that the conditions were exactly the same as the 21st of March, 1918. It was foggy until about 12 o'clock, and then the sun broke through. The fog lingered in the valleys for a longer period of time. So I was very fortunate to have those same conditions and really appreciate the problem that the British faced. And, of course, the fog was, it depended where you were on the front, but it was pretty bad everywhere until lunchtime. The, the British defence, again, this new defence scheme, was not based on trench lines. It was based on dispersed positions with a machine gun defence, and that was completely thwarted by the fog. And the British did smoke fog trials in the Second World War, and, uh, again, I've looked at that um, archive with the results, and effectively that that found that if the smoke or fog gave up only up to 25 yards of uh, vision, it favoured the attack. 25 to 50 yards was marginal. Over 50 yards, it actually favoured the defender. But it's very difficult when you read the personal accounts to know how thick um, the fog was. But some say you could hardly see the man in front, some say 10 yards, some say 50 yards. But I think the balance is that it aided the German and not the British. And the, the final piece in the jigsaw for me is when uh, 46 North Midland attacked the Rikaval Bridge in um, September 1918, which is sort of regarded as one of the greatest British attacks on the war. Well, of course, the 46 North Midland Division had been regarded as a, a dud division based on its performance between uh, 1915 and 1917, yet it managed to storm the Bridge and um, take the Hindenburg Line. That morning, it was foggy. The Rikaval Bridge is actually only a couple of miles away from what was the British front line on the 21st of March 1918. So I can understand why the 46th North Midland Division had such a big success. And on the German side in March 1918, you had the elite divisions of the German army trying to win the war in a flash. So I think the fog favoured the Germans on that day. And that's probably is one of my top three tactical factors. <laughs> Alongside the reserves, the plan for reserves. And probably the next one is the delay in taking over the frontage. 
affected uh, fit arms performance. So when will this research be available for the public? Right, I'm, <laughs> some of it will be available very soon because I'm about to put um, pen to paper or in fact probably more like a cut and paste out of the chapter I've already written which uh, I have a chapter which contains the, I think, the, the defence scheme, Fifth Army defence scheme, and uh, how the whole policy and uh, the doctrine um, developed is a very interesting subject. So I'm going to be writing an article for the Western Front Association's Stand 2 magazine, and hopefully I'll be submitting that in three or four months' time. Um, the next bit is, because I'm... Uh, writing a chapter about 58 Division's performance uh, for the book you're editing on uh, London Pride. I'll be attending the, uh, I've already volunteered to give a presentation at the conference, which is taking place in London next next spring. Whoever attends that conference, hopefully will get a, a chance to hear, hear me talk about it. And of course, when the chapter in the book is, is published, in 2025, I think, uh, I'll see that. But my thesis, I'm only working on the thesis part-time, which is is six sort of hard slog years, I think you would call it. So that's going to be finished in 2026, and um, they will be published then. And I know that Professor Lloyd is quite keen that I write a book afterwards. So we shall see what happens with, with that. And I mean, don't, don't forget as well that, that uh, today I've only been talking about um, Fifth Army in, in um, March 1918 because. That is actually, it splits neatly. That's the first half of my thesis, which is just about complete. And uh, this autumn, I'll be moving on to Fifth Army in the advance to victory, where, interestingly, they were commanded by General William Birdwood, who had previously commanded the Anzac. Um, so well, that research is still is still to start, but it's quite an interesting little story in its own right. And there is a podcast being recorded this afternoon on that very subject, or on Birdwood as a whole. But on that bombshell, Glyn, thank you very much for your time. Okay, thank you so much, Tom. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time... <laughs>